Warning, the following broadcast is not intended to be a substitute for legal advice or firearm safety, competence, or proficiency training. This broadcast is solely for entertainment, discussion, and informational purposes. Side effects may include a sudden undeniable urge to exercise your Second Amendment rights, and you may in fact turn into a gun nut. You've been warned. And welcome to another episode of Locked, Loaded, and Legal. I'm your host, Jose Morales, with your host, Mike Jeremita. Thank you, everybody, for joining us once again. We've had a tremendous amount of positive feedback from our listeners. Thank you guys for getting active and involved. It was great to be over at Harrisburg Hunters and Anglers Live with Vice President Al Bernardi. It was great to have him on as a guest. And what we want to do today is we want to give a few shout outs to people who have been actively participating and writing in, as well as answer a few questions that they've posed to us throughout the last few weeks. So first, I want to just let everybody know, Bob C. over in Chester County, thank you so much for your positive feedback and thank you for being a listener. We've also got Skip in the Chester County area who also provided feedback. He's a regular listener. And we've got some great questions. And one I think is tailored specifically to you, Jose. We've got a question from Rebecca. Now, Rebecca let us know that she is reading just about every single book that we mentioned during our call to action episode, which I think is great. She's finished with a few of them. And she's becoming rapidly a very big Masad Ayub disciple of sorts uh, through... Uh, through her reading and staying on top of her education. One question she did have, Jose, is she regularly carries and regularly carries in a vehicle. Now, because of her situation and her setup, it's not necessarily feasible to carry in the center console. And she's seen these magnets that you place sort of near the steering column. I wanted to know what you thought about that. And depending on what your thoughts are regarding those magnets, uh, what you suggest to people who are trying to find a comfortable way to carry in a vehicle? Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for reaching out, for listening to the show, and for uh, and for reading up on Masad Ayub and for participating and sending us questions. We really uh, we strive to answer these questions, and this is what we're here for, to kind of uh, bring this information to you guys. So thank you in advance, Rebecca. That's a really, really great question. Um, I haven't trained Rebecca, so I don't know what her kind of level of competency is, and it uh, that's a question that I get quite often, Mike. Uh, you know, I'm carrying in a vehicle. How do I go about securing that, that firearm and what have you? So anybody who's been a, a long time listener to the show knows how we preach about layers of defense, right? Having options other than the gun. So I usually backtrack and say, okay, what I do personally in my car is I have an option other than the firearm. Uh, so that if I need to access, let's say, my pepper spray, it's in the uh, side map uh, pocket um, next to my my driver's side door, Velcroed with double-sided Velcro, so that I have an option other than the firearm in the event that I may need it. That coupled with a little bit of situational awareness goes a long way, making sure your doors are locked, your windows are down, 
who's approaching you at lights and so on and so forth. Because again, the best gunfight is the one that we avoid, right? Through awareness and through alertness. Now, if you've already prepared your car with an option to be able to protect yourself, which I think everybody should do whether or not they carry a firearm, then the second question, the second part of that is, okay, if I'm carrying a firearm, where is the best place to, to secure that firearm so that I can access it quickly and easily and so that um, it is secure as well when I'm driving because, again, it's one of these things where you want to make sure the gun is where you need it to be, but you have to have um, access to the firearm in case of an emergency. So I've seen a number of different solutions. That really goes back to, okay, well, what kind of firearm are you carrying? You're carrying a semi-automatic or you're carrying a revolver. How long is the actual, the length of that firearm? Is it a subcompact, a full-size gun, uh, and so on? What's the layout of your particular cabin? So what I tell people to do is there are a lot of different options out there. I've seen holsters that attach to the steering column. I've seen holsters that you can uh, jerry-rig and, um, and screw into uh, certain areas of your vehicle. It really depends, again, on your body size, on the size of your gun, and on the level of competency or training that you've had manipulating that gun under stress, not only defensively with standard classes. A lot of times people want to draw those guns from a vehicle. Um, everything is compounded inside a vehicle, Mike. It's a lot more dangerous. You have um, your body in a compressed area, so it's really, really easy to sweep yourself by accident to point that uh, that muzzle to some bits and parts that you may not want that gun pointed to. So I suggest that people have a solid foundation in manipulating that gun defensively. If at all possible, take a training course so that they know how to properly draw. Now, if you know how to draw a gun and, you, and if it's the right gun for you, if it fits your hand properly, um, figure out again where how your car is laid out and what is the best position for you to be able to reach that gun based on your body style and the layout of your vehicle. In my particular vehicle, it's a little bit easier to have uh, something on the inside kind of uh, almost um, center console area, uh, and, but that's, you know, my particular vehicle. So um, analyze the, in the layout of your, in your vehicle in particular and see, okay, where can you easily reach and practice with a, a mock gun or um, with a, a blue training gun, manipulating that firearm inside your inside the vehicle slowly, and paying particular attention to the direction of that muzzle. You're going to see once you start manipulating that gun inside of a, a confined space how challenging it is to not accidentally point that gun at yourself or somewhere else, and, and all those things together. Uh, will give you a foundation to start researching different options. Again, there are, I've seen holsters that attach to the inside or to the uh, steering wheel, the columns, the steering wheel columns of vehicles. Um, there are all sorts of different solutions out there. The main thing I tell people is if you're going to have a holster um, out, uh, off body carry or place your gun in a holster outside of your body um, make sure please that when you leave that vehicle you take that that gun with you mm. um, and you safely know how to unholster that gun while you're in the vehicle to place it in a secondary holster it's you know they're trade-offs i like um i personally like depending on the time of the year to carry um, a, my revolver in a pocket holster. So what's nice about pocket holsters and stub nose revolvers is, um, and you have a, you you carry a, a revolver, Mike, so you know, 
in a pocket holster, you can take that pocket holster and move it from the uh, from your pocket on your in your uh, winter coat to let's say a chest pocket. Mm-hmm. If you have a fleece or a jacket with a chest pocket, you can move that then from there when you get out of the vehicle and place it inside your pants pocket or wherever it is that you you know you're going to be carrying depending on your carry paradigm. But whatever you decide to do, however you decide to do it, practice slowly and safely um, because you don't want that first time draw to be one under stress where it's a life or death situation if that makes any kind of sense sure so sounds like the broadest question is number one how comfortable are you at safely manipulating handling the firearm in general and then you go to another level thinking you know have you trained in an atmosphere tailored specifically toward inside the vehicle because it seems like that's something that's not done very often and you'd never want your first time to be in the heat of the moment when you've got to defend your life and i think it goes back to your answer you know partially wasn't even a gun answer it's that that answer that goes back to your quote of the century when you said not every problem is a nail that requires a hammer you got your layers of defense and sometimes the gun isn't the answer in these situations. So I appreciate you going through all of that for, for Rebecca. And Rebecca, thanks for listening. We've got a couple of more questions from our listeners that we're going to get to and talk about. And we'll get to those right after this break. Hi, Jose Morales here. Mike and I want to take a minute to thank each and every one of you for taking the time to listen to us. If you find the broadcast interesting or informative, please tell others about us and consider showing your support either by becoming a patron on Patreon or through a donation on PayPal via the links at LockedLoadedAndLegal.com. Thanks again and stay safe. And we're back with another segment of Lock, Loaded, and Legal. And before we left for the break, we had a question from Rebecca regarding having a firearm and access to a firearm within a vehicle and how to kind of draw and have access to that gun from within her vehicle. Rebecca, I, uh, I apologize for the long, convoluted answer. There's no simple answer, especially as a firearms instructor. I don't know your level of experience. But um, Mike did mention to me that you wanted to know about a couple of other books um, feel free to send me an email at jose at lockedloadedandlegal.com. I'll be happy to make some suggestions. I'll ask you a couple of questions and find out you know, what, um, where you stand in terms of your, your educational journey. I'll be happy to make those, uh, those suggestions. Now, I want to go ahead and uh, send a quick shout-out to Robert Rivers and his wonderful wife, Annette. Um, Annette actually purchased a, uh, a copy or received a copy of uh, Mike's book. She was um, kind enough to actually contact me on Robert's behalf. He is an avid listener. Robert, thank you for listening. And he really, really, really wanted a copy of your book, Mike. And ah. uh, and she and I kept missing each other. So what we did was we decided to send him just a complimentary copy, um, which you personalized. So, Annette, I hope that Robert enjoyed it. Robert, thank you so much for listening to the show and being an advocate. I hope to see you soon, and I hope you had a great holiday, my friend. Yeah, thanks, Robert. We appreciate it. So the next uh, set of questions is from Dominic. Dominic wanted to know if you have any uh, recommendations on flying with firearms, kind of do's and don'ts and what's the best equipment to have and so on and so forth when you take your firearm on an airplane. So what's your take on that, Mike? 
That's an excellent question. Now, the first thing we need to know, you're not going to be bringing them in your carry-on bag. We see a whole lot of people running into trouble, not only not by by doing something on purpose, but by accident, right? As gun owners, we use different bags for different things. Maybe you end up with uh, some ammunition rolling around in a bag you didn't know was there or a spare magazine, something of that nature. Make sure as a gun owner, you double, triple, quadruple check your bags. I did have a lady who was in her 70s, had never been in trouble in her entire life, and ended up calling me in a very serious situation because she had a 357 in her carry-on bag that she forgot was there. So make sure as gun owners we double, triple, quadruple check our bags. Another thing I want you to be careful about, make sure that it's lawful to own and possess firearms or for your situation to possess firearms in the state of your departure and the state of your arrival. We see people all the time landing in LaGuardia in New York City or landing in Newark, New Jersey, not realizing that mere possession of a firearm or mere possession of hollow point ammunition outside of exemption or mere possession of a magazine that's capable of accepting more than 10 rounds will get you in a whole lot of trouble. We're talking about felony level offenses here, folks. You don't have to be trying to do anything wrong, so keep that in mind. Now, all that being said, there is a way for you to lawfully travel with your firearms. And if you're going to be doing this, I strongly recommend that you do your own research. There's due diligence involved here. Consult with an attorney if you, if you can. But here's the basics of it. You're going to be traveling with your firearm. It's got to be checked, right? Like we said, you can't bring it in the carry-on. And I think we all have some kind of understanding that when you get online and they make you take off your belt and your shoes and your underwear that you're not supposed to bring a gun on the plane. But what the law says is it's got to be checked, it's got to be unloaded, and a locked horror-sided case, and only you can have the combination or the key. Now, when you walk on in, they won't accept this check-in curbside. You've got to go in and stand on that stinking line and go on up front. They'll make you fill out a declaration form. Be careful about the way you inform them that you need to fill out that declaration form. You can say, hey, I need to fill out a declaration form today, or I'm traveling with my firearms today. I need a declaration form. You don't want to walk up to the check-in counter at the airport and say, I got a gun, because that's not going to work out very exactly. well Exactly. That wouldn't be a good idea, would it? <laughs> right. So you're going to fill out that declaration form, and so long as you've got your locked hard-sided case, uh, then they're going to have you fill out that form. You can check it in. Different airlines will also have different policies as to how they want you to do it and what exactly, exactly you're allowed to bring, how they want you to store it. Ammunition need not be declared with that declaration form, but it does need to be checked. And what the law says is it's got to be stored in a uh, case or a box that will protect the primer. Factory cases work great because all you got to do really is throw some duct tape around the box, uh, make sure they don't spill out all over the place. So that's the way, uh, the, the broad overview of the way you're going to travel with your firearms on these trips doing so by air. Jose, I know you've got some practical experience. I know that you actually asked me for guidance uh, several years ago on, on this particular type of situation. I drew up a legal opinion for you. What's your experience been like traveling with firearms? 
Well, just like you had said, we want to check, double check, triple check, and quadruple check that uh, we don't have any uh, spent shell casings or anything that we're not supposed to have within our our travel uh, bags and such. A lot of times, you know, we as gun guys will it will be using uh, you know our favorite range bags or you know our backpacks with uh, you know with all of our tactical uh, patches and stuff on there. And these things have been in and out of gun ranges, and they may have empty shell casings tucked in different nooks and crannies. So guys, please, please, please check, uh, check, empty those bags out completely and thoroughly before you start traveling. Because again, one way to guarantee you're going to get a full cavity search is for some TSA agent to find an empty nine millimeter, a spent shell casing. It's just not going to be fun. So again, I from take it from experience. I, uh, last time I went I went uh, traveling with my firearms. I, I sighed. I said, really, do I have to do this? And I went ahead and did it, and I found three empty shell cases in the linings of my bag. I'm glad I went through it, and uh, I cleared it out. So that's one thing. Um, a lot of times when we uh, when we train, we can actually purchase our ammunition at our destination. So unless I absolutely possibly have to, uh, for training, I just end up either buying the ammunition at, uh, at my location. A lot of training organizations will give you the option to mm. purchase ammunition there. So you may pay a little bit extra, but hey, you know what? That's just the cost of kind of doing business. And and uh, you can have the uh, the ammunition either sent there or um, or pick it up from your training organization. Or hey, go to your local, go to a local gun gun shop and, and buy, a, you know, buy a box of defensive ammo if you'd like. You know, again, it's, it's sometimes, you know, a little bit, um, a little bit of an investment goes a long way. One of the things I learned when I was traveling is uh, you you should absolutely have be the only person with the locks to your uh, your case, but your case should have at least two modes or two two uh, two locks, not just one. If you have a, a an approved travel case for firearms and it has two locations for locks, you have to have two locks. If you only have one lock out of two, the TSA may get you, may make you go and buy another lock. I was lucky enough for the TSA agent to say to me, hey, you only have one lock here. We have an extra TSA lock. Do you mind if I just lock this, you know, lock the other the other side for you? And uh, I didn't know. Unbeknownst to me, I didn't even know I needed two locks. He was very kind. I said, hey, you sure? Thank you for saving me, uh, you know, some some uh, some hassle and an extra trip, uh, uh, you know. And so he was able to secure my case with two locks, Two TSA-approved locks um, goes a long way, and that's what's going to enable us to be able to travel with that firearm secure. I'm pretty sure I know the reason for that, Jose. So we don't have a whole lot of guidance when they talk about what kind of cases are acceptable. Um, but one of the only requirements is that it can't be easily broken into or squeezed into, even if it's locked. That's one of the only requirements that they have. So we've all got a flimsy plastic case laying around somewhere where even if there's a lock on it, you could sort of pry it open with your fingers and get to the inside. That's not going to cut it for these things. And if you've got a case that has those two different locations for locks, many times if you only have one on there, you can easily pry open the other side and get on into it. That's so that exactly may be, Yeah, that may be what they're getting at. One thing I've found is that just because a case is made for firearms doesn't mean it will be acceptable. And just because a case isn't made for firearms doesn't mean it will be unacceptable. I know people who have traveled with camera cases storing their firearms in there, and they've worked absolutely fine. Another thing about the locks. 
uh, under the code of federal regulations, only you can have access to that firearm, meaning only you can have the combination or the key. So practically speaking, that brings around two points. Number one, those TSA locks where you can get into them and TSA can independently get into them, technically a violation of the Code of Federal Regulations. Now, I know people who have practically traveled with those without issue, but just letting you know, if we want to get down to the nitty-gritty letter of the law, there is that specific regulation in the Code of Federal Regulations. Another thing being uh, that if TSA came on over and specifically asked you to hand over a key, then that would also be a violation of the Code of Federal Regulations. There's nothing wrong with you opening it in their presence in a secure area if they needed to check the inside, but to simply hand them over the key, that's technically a violation of the Code of Federal Regulations. So just a couple of things to consider when you're flying with your firearms, Jose. Absolutely, and it's one of these things, it's a little bit of a gray area because when, um, and you can't assume that the TSA agent or agents are familiar with the process. Um, I was flying from Philadelphia and I thought I was going to have a, a heck of a time to flying out of Philadelphia with my firearms and I had a case designed for guns. I had, I had at least five handguns in that case and it, it went seamlessly. The only real issue um, was that, again, I only had one out of two locks and, uh, and he, uh, the TSA agent, had to have me open the case so that he can review it and then I locked it, secured it, I was given the key, and then um, it was uh, it was transported separate from my carry-on luggage. So, again, don't assume. On the way back from Arizona, though, the uh, the TSA agent looked at me as though I just had a set of horns when I said I'd like to declare my firearms. I'm flying back home um, with my firearms, uh, and I need to check these in. And uh, she she I thought that she was going to just call uh, call for backup, but. Fortunately, she was able to walk me to someone who knew what they were, you know, what they were doing and were familiar with the process. And it was much easier actually leaving from Philadelphia to Arizona than coming back from Arizona to Philadelphia. It was kind of bizarre. Sorry, Jose, but that lady doesn't belong in Arizona. She needs to find a new place to live. <laughs> Maybe New Jersey. I don't know. Yeah, send it to Jersey. New York, She's I don't know. Like that, LaGuardia. But Arizona, that's no place to, to not be down with firearms. So with all that in mind, we're going to get to the last few questions right after we get back from this break. segment of Locked, Loaded, and Legal. I'm going to remind everybody and all our listeners to visit us via our social media outlets. Go to LockedLoadedAndLegal.com to find out how to reach us via Instagram, via Facebook, via Twitter, and uh, feel free to send us questions. We are here to answer your questions and uh, and hear for you guys. So please visit us at LockedLoadedAndLegal.com to find out more about the show and to reach out to us via our numerous social media outlets. So Mike, before we hand it out, um, so Mike, before the last break, 
we had uh, Dominic ask us a couple of questions, and another question that he had was about body armor. Are there any laws against wearing body armor or Kevlar if you're not police and if it's useful to do so? So that's a good question. You got to remember that each state may have different laws regarding body armor and whether it's lawful to possess and under what circumstances it is. I can tell you that there is a prohibition at the federal level against what they call violent felons. So if anybody's been convicted of a felony that constitutes a crime of violence, and there's a very specific definition for that, it means, quote, an offense that has an element of the offense, the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against the person or property of another, or B, any other offense that is a felony and that by its nature involves a substantial risk that physical force against the person or property or of another may be used in the course of committing the offense, or C, any felony under Chapter 77, 109A, 110, or 117. So the bottom line is, if you've got convictions for felonies, even if um, they, they impact your right to own and possess firearms, this is a different standard. So if you're really interested in doing so, and if you've got convictions, you want to consult with an attorney because I think I made it very clear through reading that definition in and of itself that there's a whole lot that's going to go into it. It's not a cut and dry answer. Um, but if you're not one of those persons who's prohibited, there's nothing at the federal level prohibiting you from possessing, from owning body armor. Different states will have different laws. Some of them make it somewhat extra illegal to use body armor during the commission of a felony, right? So it's more of an enhancement than anything else. And other states just have no laws dealing with them. For example, Pennsylvania, we've just got no laws on the books dealing with body armor. So be sure to know the laws of your state and understand that the prohibitions at the federal level are different than those that prohibit you from owning and possessing firearms. I did want to quickly mention that even with that federal prohibition, there's a specific exemption with written certification from an employer that you need it basically for the safe performance of lawful business activities. So you got to keep you could keep that in mind. Uh, make sure you consult with a professional before you go ahead and do so if you've got any questions at all, because you don't want to break federal law. So that's the deal with with body armor. Jose, any comments on that? Well, I mean, if you're going to purchase body armor, just do your do your due diligence and research and realize that body armor can be very expensive and there it's graded by different uh, levels of body armor. Um, and it can, again, go up to several thousand dollars. And, you know, don't confuse, let's say, body armor with um, with tactical vests or with chest rigs that let you carry spare magazines and so on and so forth or with a combination of those two with, you know, with plate carriers and, and Kevlar inserts. It can get pretty complicated and, um, and pretty, uh, you know, pretty expensive. So just be aware, do your due diligence and find out, hey, you know, is there something that I could really benefit from and, and, and need? Uh, there's a whole market out there on uh, different defensive uh, armor-related um, accoutrement. You know, I've seen backpacks and book bags that um, have Kevlar inserts. You know, so again, it really all depends on the uh, on the scenario and and what the application um, and reason you're going to be purchasing that body armor, um, whether or not it's just a feasible or makes sense to even you know purchase it or make that investment. Hmm. 
That's interesting. You know, we've got one more question that he submitted I wanted to get to, and then I've actually got a question for, for you, Jose, sparked by this whole discussion. Dominic wanted to know if there's any law in Pennsylvania that makes it a felony for carrying on a college campus if the school decides they don't want it there. Well, Dominic, we've discussed in the past how you've got a state-specific prohibition on school grounds. This only goes through the 12th grade, and you've also got that federal law that does not apply if you've got a license to carry firearms in that state. But then you've got private property laws, and I think this is what it comes down to here in Pennsylvania specifically. Now, in Pennsylvania, uh, they don't give, by way of statute, no gun signs the force of law. What I mean by that. If you go to North Carolina and a private business that isn't otherwise off limits to firearms has a no gun sign and you walk past that no gun sign in North Carolina, then you're committing a specific crime. They've got a law on the books that prohibits that. You're committing a misdemeanor. Pennsylvania has no such law, but we do have trespass laws. So if you're asked to leave, you got to leave. Otherwise, you're trespassing and you could be committing a crime and there could be criminal and civil penalties associated with refusing to leave. Now, another... Uh, issue comes up and people have often argued this uh, what if there's a sign and they don't ask you to leave because there's part of the trespass law in Pennsylvania that talks about entering knowing you're not privileged to do so so some will argue that if you know about the policy and you go in anyway then you're committing a trespass because you're entering knowing you're not privileged to do so now there's never been a prosecution dealing with that specific interpretation in that context, to my knowledge. There's certainly no case law dealing with it. But just because something's never happened doesn't mean it's never going to happen. So practically speaking, I think the issue is they'd have to prove that somebody knew about that specific policy and ignored it anyway. And then they'd have to get to straining that interpretation. Suppose, for example, you knew that you're supposed to wear a tie in a steakhouse. They got a specific policy that you got to wear a tie. You walk in without a tie. Are you committing a trespass that's worthy of criminal penalties? I don't know. I think that's a little bit strained of an interpretation. So the basic answer is they're treated like any other private business because there's no specific law dealing with uh, universities, college campuses in Pennsylvania. I hope that makes sense. Now, Jose, I've got one last question for you. And this all got sparked up in my brain from us talking about flying with firearms. I had somebody ask me not too long ago, and I said, you know, this is a good Jose question. They said, Mike, when we get on those airplanes, we've got to take off just about everything. We can't bring anything on the plane. And so we're completely defenseless when we're on an airplane. Are there any measures that we can take when we're on an airplane to have some sort of hope of protecting ourselves or our loved ones? Absolutely. Well, absolutely. We um, we had a couple of months ago um, what we called a, at Philly Firearms Academy a creative writing class. And it was kind of our take on a defensive pen class. I hate those uh, tactical pen class titles because it really is uh, about knowing how to use common everyday items, pens, pencils, magic markers, anything that can be used in a certain way as a bludgeoning device or as a tool for self-defense. So we, we labeled it a creative writing class and we had a lot of fun in our uh, our instructor was very, was one of the, he's one of the best martial artists on the East Coast, phenomenal guy. 
and uh, we not only talked about the use of all kinds of uh, of pens, not necessarily the really, really, really expensive tactical-looking pens, the ones that if you uh, if you whip out a TSA, uh, the TSA checkpoint, it screams, you know, um, I bought this and I'm tactical. You know, you don't. Doesn't need to be something really expensive. You can have. Uh, you can buy a box of uh, standard pens uh, that that meet a certain criteria for rigidity and for and for length and such, right from Staples. And there is no. Uh, there are no TSA regulations on taking pens to on an airplane. Um, and you can have as many of them on your body. The the real key is knowing how to utilize that tool because it's just a tool like anything else. Knowing how to grip the pen, knowing where to, what the striking points are. First and foremost, having that combat mindset to uh, to be able to answer the question: If I had to shove this pen through somebody's eyeball into their brain, could I do it? And mm-hmm. then and just practice that mindset and practice those skills. Something as simple as just a set of keys. Um, you know, keys are legal. You can carry keys on a on a on a on a plane. Um, last time I checked, they were absolutely fine. They don't have to be these special key knife things. It's standard set of keys um, that have uh, you know that have certain you know have a certain length and a certain ability to be able to grip them a certain way. And knowing the techniques to use those go a long way to have an option, um, you know, to be able to protect yourself. So. Yes, there are definitely options out there. We just have to do our due diligence. And if anybody's interested in those types of classes, reach out to me at jose at uh, lockedloadedandlegal.com. And we'll put together a, a specific uh, class for our listeners on improvised weapons. And, uh, and we will have a good time doing it. You know, Jose, if we could get a defensive pen class put together with 10 of our listeners, if 10 of you reach out and tell Jose you want to do defensive pen, I'll come, I'll take the class as well. And we could even talk about some of the stuff on the the legal side of things. So it would be great to get to do that for those of us who are close enough to to reach the Philadelphia area, Montgomery County area. I think that'll be fun. What do you think, Jose? I think so, too. But as long as they don't try to use you as the test dummy, right? (laughs) Well, then what good am I, right? All right. Well, thank you folks so much for listening once again. Uh, We appreciate those of you who are actively participating, writing in. Let us know about your progress. Again, we're doing this for you, our listeners. So once again, signing off, I'm Mike Jeremita with your host. Jose Morales, thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of Locked, Loaded, and Legal, brought to you by Philly Firearms Radio. For more information and to show your support, visit LockedLoadedAndLegal.com.